Chapter Two of Rupert of Hentzau. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter. Rupert of Hentzau, taken from the memoirs of Fritz von Tarlenheim, by Anthony Hope. Chapter Two, A Station Without a Cab. The arrangements for my meeting with Mr. Rassendil had been carefully made by correspondence before he left England. He was to be at the Golden Lion Hotel at eleven o'clock on the night of the fifteenth of October. I reckoned to arrive in the town between eight and nine on the same evening, to proceed to another hotel, and on pretence of taking a stroll, slip out and call on him at the appointed hour. I should then fulfil my commission, take his answer, and enjoy the rare pleasure of a long talk with him. Early the next morning he would have left Vintenberg, and I should be on my way back to Strelsau. I knew that he would not fail to keep his appointment, and I was perfectly confident of being able to carry out the programme punctually. I had, however, taken the precaution of obtaining a week's leave of absence, in case any unforeseen accident should delay my return. Conscious of having done all I could to guard against misunderstanding or mishap, I got into the train in a tolerably peaceful frame of mind. The box was in my inner pocket, the letter in a portemonnaie. I could feel them both with my hand. I was not in uniform, but I took my revolver. Although I had no reason to anticipate any difficulties, I did not forget that what I carried must be protected at all hazards and all costs. The weary night journey wore itself away. Bauer came to me in the morning, performed his small services, repacked my handbag, procured me some coffee, and left me. It was then about eight o'clock. We had arrived at a station of some importance, and were not to stop again till midday. I saw Bauer enter the second-class compartment in which he was travelling, and settled down in my own coupé. I think it was at this moment that the thought of Rischenheim came again into my head, and I found myself wondering why he clung to the hopeless idea of compassing Rupert's return, and what business had taken him from Strelsau. But I made little of the matter, and drowsy from a broken night's rest, soon fell into a doze. I was alone in the carriage, and could sleep without fear or danger. I was awakened by our noontide halt. Here I saw Bauer again. After taking a basin of soup, I went to the telegraph bureau to send a message to my wife. The receipt of it would not merely set her mind at ease, but would also ensure word of my safe progress reaching the Queen. As I entered the bureau, I met Bauer coming out of it. He seemed rather startled at our encounter, but told me, readily enough, that he had been telegraphing for rooms at Vintenberg a very needless precaution, since there was no danger of the hotel being full. In fact, I was annoyed, as I had especially wished to avoid calling attention to my arrival. However, the mischief was done, and to rebuke my servant might have aggravated it by setting his wits at work to find out my motive for secrecy. So I said nothing, but passed by him with a nod. When the whole circumstances came to light— I had reason to suppose that besides his message to the innkeeper, Bauer had sent one of a character, and to a quarter, unsuspected by me. 
We stopped once again before reaching Windenberg. I put my head out of the window to look about me, and saw Bauer standing near the luggage van. He ran to me eagerly, asking whether I required anything. I told him nothing, but instead of going away he began to talk to me. Growing weary of him, I returned to my seat, and waited impatiently for the train to go on. There was a further delay of five minutes, and then we started. "'Thank goodness!' I exclaimed, leaning back comfortably in my seat, and taking a cigar from my case. But in a moment the cigar rolled unheeded on to the floor, as I sprang eagerly to my feet, and darted to the window, for just as we were clearing the station, I saw, being carried past the carriage, on the shoulders of a porter, a bag which looked very much like mine. Bauer had been in charge of my bag, and it had been put in the van under his direction. It seemed unlikely that it should have been taken out now by any mistake. Yet the bag I saw was very like the bag I owned, but I was not sure, and could have done nothing had I been sure. We were not to stop again before Vintenberg, and with my luggage or without it, I myself must be in the town that evening. We arrived punctual to our appointed time. I sat in the carriage a moment or two, expecting Bauer to open the door and relieve me of my small baggage. He did not come, so I got out. It seemed that I had few fellow-passengers, and these were quickly disappearing, on foot or in carriages and carts, that waited outside the station. I stood looking for my servant and my luggage. The evening was mild. I was encumbered with my handbag and the heavy fur coat. There were no signs either of bower or of baggage. I stayed where I was for five or six minutes. The guard of the train had disappeared, but presently I observed the station-master. He seemed to be taking a last glance round the premises. Going up to him, I asked whether he had seen my servant. He could give me no news of him. I had no luggage-ticket, for mine had been in Bower's hands, but I prevailed on him to allow me to look at the baggage which had arrived. My property was not among it. The station-master was inclined, I think, to be a little sceptical as to the existence of both bag and of servant. His only suggestion was that the man must have been left behind accidentally. I pointed out that in this case he would not have had the bag with him, but it would have come on in the train. The station-master admitted the force of my argument. He shrugged his shoulders and spread his hands out. He was evidently at the end of his resources. Now, for the first time, and with sudden force, a doubt of Bower's fidelity thrust itself into my mind. I remembered how little I knew of the fellow, and how great my charge was. Three rapid movements of my hand assured me that letter, box, and revolver were in their respective places. If Bower had gone hunting in the bag, he had drawn a blank. The station-master noticed nothing. He was staring at the dim gas-lamp that hung from the roof. I turned to him. "'Well, tell him when he comes,' I began. "'He won't come to-night now,' interrupted the station-master, none too politely. "'No other train arrives to-night.' "'Tell him when he does come to follow me at once to the Vintenbergerhof. I'm going there immediately.' The time was short, and I did not wish to keep Mr. Rassendil waiting. Besides, in my newborn nervousness, I was anxious to accomplish my errand as soon as might be. What had become of Bower? The thought returned, and now with it another that seemed to connect itself in some subtle way with my present position. Why and whither had the Count of Lutzau-Rischenheim set out from Strelsau a day before I started on my journey to Wintenberg? 
"'If he comes, I'll tell him,' said the station-master, and as he spoke he looked round the yard. There was not a cab to be seen. I knew that the station lay on the extreme outskirts of the town, for I had passed through Vintenberg on my wedding journey nearly three years before. The trouble involved in walking and the further waste of time put the cap on my irritation. "'Why don't you have enough cabs?' I asked angrily. "'There are plenty generally, sir,' he answered, more civilly, with an apologetic air. "'There would be to-night, but for an accident.' "'Another accident. This expedition of mine seemed doomed to be the sport of chance. "'Just before your train arrived,' he continued, "'a local came in. As a rule, hardly anybody comes by it, but to-night a number of men, oh, twenty or five-and-twenty, I should think, got out.' I collected their tickets myself, and they all came from the first station on the line. Well, that's not so strange, for there's a good beer-garden there. But curiously enough, every one of them hired a separate cab, and drove off, laughing and shouting to one another as they went. That's how it happens that there were only one or two cabs left when your train came in, and they were snapped up at once. Taken alone, this occurrence was nothing— but I asked myself whether the conspiracy that had robbed me of my servant had deprived me of a vehicle also. "'What sort of men were they?' I asked. "'All sorts of men, sir,' answered the station-master. "'But most of them were shabby-looking fellows. I wondered where some of them had got the money for their ride.' The vague feeling of uneasiness, which had already attacked me, grew stronger. Although I fought against it, calling myself an old woman and a coward— I must confess to an impulse which almost made me beg the station-master's company on my walk. But, besides being ashamed to exhibit a timidity apparently groundless, I was reluctant to draw attention to myself in any way. I would not for the world have it supposed that I carried anything of value. "'Well, there's no help for it,' said I, and buttoning my heavy coat about me, I took my handbag and stick in one hand, and asked my way to the hotel.' My misfortunes had broken down the station-master's indifference, and he directed me in a sympathetic tone. "'Straight along the road, sir,' said he, "'between the poplars, for hard on half a mile. Then the houses begin, and your hotel is in the first square you come to on the right.' I thanked him curtly, for I had not quite forgiven him his earlier incivility, and started on my walk, weighed down by my big coat and the handbag. When I left the lighted station-yard, I realised that the evening had fallen very dark, and the shade of the tall, lank trees intensified the gloom. I could hardly see my way, and went timidly with frequent stumbles over the uneven stones of the road. The lamps were dim, few, and widely separated. So far as company was concerned, I might have been a thousand miles from an inhabited house. In spite of myself, the thought of danger persistently assailed my mind. I began to review every circumstance of my journey, twisting the trivial into some ominous shape, magnifying the significance of everything which might justly seem suspicious, studying in the light of my new apprehensions every expression of Bower's face, and every word that has fallen from his lips. I could not persuade myself into security— I carried the Queen's letter, and—well, I would have given much to have old Zapt or Rudolf Rassendil by my side. Now, when a man suspects danger, 
Let him not spend his time in asking whether there be really danger, or in upbraiding himself for timidity, but let him face his cowardice, and act as though the danger were real. If I had followed that rule, and kept my eyes about me, scanning the sides of the road and of the ground in front of my feet, instead of losing myself in a maze of reflection, I might have had time to avoid the trap, or at least to get my hand to my revolver, and make a fight for it, or indeed in the last resort to destroy what I carried before harm came to it. But my mind was preoccupied, and the whole thing seemed to happen in a minute. At the very moment that I had declared to myself the vanity of my fears, and determined to be resolute in banishing them, I heard voices, a low, strained whispering. I saw two or three figures in the shadow of the poplars by the wayside. An instant later a dart was made at me. While I could fly, I would not fight. With a sudden forward plunge, I eluded the men who rushed at me, and started at a run towards the lights of the town and the shapes of the houses, now distant about a quarter of a mile. Perhaps I ran twenty yards, perhaps fifty, I do not know. I heard the steps behind me, quick as my own. Then I fell headlong on the road, tripped up. I understood they had stretched a rope across my path. As I fell, a man bounded up from either side, and I found the rope slack under my body. There I lay on my face. A man knelt on me. Others held either hand. My face was pressed into the mud of the road, and I was like to have been stifled. My handbag had whizzed away from me. Then a voice said, "'Turn him over!' I knew the voice. It was a confirmation of the fears which I had lately been at such pains to banish. It justified the forecast of Anton von Throfzin, and explained the wager of the Count of Lutzau-Richenheim, for it was Richenheim's voice. They caught hold of me, and began to turn me on my back. Here I saw a chance, and with a great heave of my body I flung them from me. For the short instant I was free. My impetuous attack seemed to have startled the enemy. I gathered myself up on my knees, but my advantage was not to last long. Another man, whom I had not seen, sprang suddenly on me, like a bullet from a catapult. His fierce onset overthrew me. I was stretched on the ground again, on my back now, and my throat was clutched viciously in strong fingers. At the same moment my arms were again seized and pinned. The face of the man on my chest bent down towards mine, and through the darkness I discerned the features of Rupert of Hentzau. He was panting with the sudden exertion and the intense force with which he held me, but he was smiling also, and when he saw by my eyes that I knew him, he laughed softly in triumph. Then came Rischenheim's voice again. "'Where's the bag he carried? It may be in the bag.' "'You fool! He'll have it about him,' said Rupert, scornfully. "'Hold him fast while I search.' On either side my hands were still pinned fast. Rupert's left hand did not leave my throat, but his free right hand began to dart about me, feeling, probing, and rummaging. I lay quite helpless and in the bitterness of great consternation. Rupert found my revolver, drew it out with a jibe, and handed it to Rischenheim, who was now standing beside him. Then he felt the box. He drew it out. His eyes sparkled. He set his knee hard on my chest so that I could scarcely breathe. Then he ventured to loose my throat and tore the box open eagerly. "'Bring a light here!' he cried. Another ruffian came with a dark lantern, whose glow he turned on the box. Rupert opened it, and when he saw what was inside he laughed again and stowed it away in his pocket. 
Quick, quick, urged Rischenheim. We've got what we wanted, and somebody may come at any moment. A brief hope comforted me. The loss of the box was a calamity, but I would pardon fortune if only the letter escaped capture. Rupert might have suspected that I carried some such token as the box, but he could not know of the letter. Would he listen to Rischenheim? No. The Count of Hentzau did things thoroughly. "'We may as well overhaul him a bit more,' said he, and resumed his search. My hope vanished, for now he was bound to come upon the letter. Another instant brought him to it. He snatched the pocket-book, and motioning impatiently to the man to hold the lantern nearer, he began to examine the contents. I remember well the look of his face, as the fierce white light threw it up against the darkness, in its clear pallor and high-bred comeliness, with its curling lips and scornful eyes. He had the letter now, and a gleam of joy danced in his eyes as he tore it open. A hasty glance showed him what his prize was. Then, coolly and deliberately, he settled himself to read, regarding neither Rischenheim's nervous hurry nor my desperate angry glance that glared up at him. He read leisurely, as though he had been in an armchair in his own house. The lips smiled and curled as he read the last words that the Queen had written to her lover. He had indeed come on more than he thought. Rischenheim laid a hand on his shoulder. "'Quick, Rupert, quick!' he urged again, in a voice full of agitation. "'Let me alone, man. I haven't read anything so amusing for a long while,' answered Rupert. Then he burst into a laugh, crying, "'Look, look!' and pointing to the foot of the last page of the letter. I was mad with anger. My fury gave me new strength. In his enjoyment of what he read, Rupert had grown careless. His knee pressed more lightly on me, and as he showed Rischenheim the passage in the letter that caused him so much amusement, he turned his head away for an instant. My chance had come. With a sudden movement I displaced him, and with a desperate wrench I freed my right hand. Darting it out, I snatched at the letter. Rupert, alarmed for his treasure, sprang back and off me. I also sprang up on my feet, hurling away the fellow who had gripped my other hand. For a moment I stood facing Rupert. Then I darted on him. He was too quick for me. He dodged behind the man with the lantern, and hurled the fellow forward against me. The lantern fell on the ground. "'Give me your stick!' I heard Rupert say. "'Where is it?' "'That's right!' Then came Rischenheim's voice again, imploring and timid. "'Rupert, you promised not to kill him!' The only answer was a short, fierce laugh. I hurled away the man who had been thrust into my arms, and sprang forward. I saw Rupert of Hentzau. His hand was raised above his head, and held a stout club. I do not know what followed. There came, all in a confused blur of instant sequence, an oath from Rupert, a rush from me, a scuffle, as though someone sought to hold him back. Then he was on me. I felt a great thud on my forehead and I felt nothing more. Again I was on my back, with a terrible pain in my head and a dull, dreamy consciousness of a knot of men standing over me, talking eagerly to one another. I could not hear what they were saying. I had no great desire to hear. I fancied somehow that they were talking about me. They looked at me, and moved their hands towards me now and again. I heard Rupert's laugh, and saw his club poised over me. Then Rischenheim caught him by the wrist. I know now that Rischenheim was reminding his cousin that he had promised not to kill me, 
that Rupert's oath did not weigh a straw in the scales, but that he was held back only by a doubt whether I alive or my dead body would be more inconvenient to dispose of. Yet then I did not understand, but lay there listless, and presently the talking forms seemed to cease their talking. They grew blurred and dim, running into one another, and all mingling together, to form one great shapeless creature that seemed to murmur and gibber over me, some such monster as a man sees in his dreams. I hated to see it, and closed my eyes. Its murmurings and gibberings haunted my ears for a while, making me restless and unhappy. Then they died away. Their going made me happy. I sighed in contentment, and everything became as though it were not. Yet I had one more vision, breaking suddenly across my unconsciousness. A bold, rich voice sang out, "'By God, I will!' "'No, no!' cried another. Then, "'What's that?' There was a rush of feet, the cries of men who met in anger or excitement, the crack of a shot, and of another quickly following, oaths and scuffling. Then came the sound of feet flying. I could not make it out. I grew weary with the puzzle of it. Would they not be quiet?' Quiet was what I wanted. At last they grew quiet. I closed my eyes again. The pain was less now. They were quiet. I could sleep. When a man looks back on the past, reviewing in his mind the chances fortune has given and the calls she has made, he always torments himself by thinking that he could have done other and better than in fact he did. Even now I lie awake at night, sometimes making clever plans by which I could have thwarted Rupert's schemes. In these musings I am very acute. Anton von Strothin's idle talk furnishes me with many a clue, and I draw inferences sure and swift as a detective in the story-books. Bauer is my tool. I am not his. I lay Rischenheim by the heels, send Rupert howling off with a ball in his arm, and carry my precious burden in triumph to Mr. Rassendil. By the time I have played the whole game, I am indeed proud of myself. Yet in truth, in daylight truth, I fear that unless heaven sent me a fresh set of brains, I should be caught in much the same way again. Though not by that fellow Bauer, I swear. Well, there it was. They had made a fool of me. I lay on the road with a bloody head, and Rupert of Hentzau had the Queen's letter. End of chapter 2